0: We're looking at Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, and now Luke records these words. When the eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days for her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord... Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy or set apart to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I have now preached Advent sermons for 12 years, and it does become more difficult to find uh, new things to preach on when you preach for Advent sermons every year for 10 to 12 years. You end up retouching on passages and passages that most of us know very well. Those passages about uh, the shepherds or the wise men, Mary and Joseph, um, all of those uh, accounts, those narratives that we know so well in the gospel records. And yet many of us fail to come to this passage when we think about the Christmas narrative and the events surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus and what that means for us. Um, I would venture to say if we polled everybody coming in tonight and asked you to tell us one thing you knew about the birth narrative of Jesus, probably nobody would mention these short verses. And yet they are some of the most important verses in the scriptures and certainly some of the most important verses for us to consider tonight. Here we have Mary who is no doubt a young girl, a teenager, 13, 14 years old, most likely, and she is bringing this son that she has miraculously conceived and given birth to into the temple, both for purification and to present him to the Lord. And I want us to consider tonight, as we look at this together, there's two things. I want us to consider first the purification, and then secondly, I want us to consider the presentation of the Lord Jesus. Now, notice that Luke tells us in verse 21, when eight days were passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. Now, you'll know well, if you've been in a Christian church that preaches the scriptures for any length of time, you will know that the name Jesus was given to Mary before Jesus was born. And that the angel Gabriel had come to Mary and had said that She should name him Jesus, which means Jehovah saves because and you could answer this tonight. I'm sure he will what save his people from their sins. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And yet it's very interesting that first week of the Savior's life. He's nameless. I want you to think about that. The God whose name is exalted above the heavens. The entire Old Testament is about the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, that his name is exalted. And and we know the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that because Jesus has humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, Even the death on the cross that God exalted him, raised him and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. And yet that first week, he is nameless. That's part of his humiliation. That God in the flesh wouldn't even have his name until the eighth day. Um, This was tradition in Israel to name a child when he was circumcised. And yet there is so much theology and so much truth in what's happening here, especially and specifically for Jesus. Now, I want us to think about this tonight. We cannot properly understand Christmas unless we understand the Old Testament. We cannot properly understand this passage Unless we understand the theology of circumcision. Now here, what's happening is Mary is obeying God's command to put the covenant sign on her son. Remember, God had covenanted with Abraham that he was going to be a God to him and to his descendants after him and that that Abraham received the sign of circumcision. And then at God's command, he gave the covenant sign to, to every male in his house and then to all of his male offspring on the eighth day. And what's the point of that? Why? Why would God give a bloody sign to go in the male reproductive organ? And what does this have to do with Christmas? Why are we even talking about circumcision and It has everything to do with who Jesus is, and it has everything to do with what Jesus came to do. Um, By the way, God doesn't do anything arbitrary. He ordained and commanded the covenant sign to go where it went in the Old Testament to signify the corruption from Adam past generation generation to generation to generation to generation, until by a bloody judgment, the hearts of men would be purified. The filth of their hearts would be cut away. Their old nature would be dealt with by a bloody judgment, which is the cross. And it's really remarkable that every Israelite who bore the covenant sign in the Old Testament, by obeying God and taking that sign To themselves, by an act of faith of the parents, they were saying, I am a sinner and I need my heart cleansed. And that will only happen if God fulfills what he has promised and does what he alone can do by a bloody judgment. So that the corruption that we give to our children and to their children could only be dealt with, as Paul says, by the circumcision of Christ on the cross. It's very interesting that what happens to Jesus at the beginning of his life and the incarnation is a foretaste of what he came into the world to do. The Apostle Paul will say in Colossians 2 that in him you were circumcised, right? The prophets talked about get a circumcised heart. That was the whole point of God revealing himself to his people, that that we need to be born again. We need the old nature taken away, the, the heart of stone, and we need to be given hearts of flesh, and, and how can I do that? Because I can't do that to myself. I can't change my old nature. And, and the Apostle Paul says in him, you were circumcised. He's talking about heart circumcision. With the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And Paul is there speaking about the cross. So the blood that he sheds... On the eighth day is a foretaste of the atoning blood he would shed at the cross. I've mentioned this before. Maybe some of you have heard this, but I've always thought it's a fascinating thought that that Jesus sheds blood three times at his circumcision in the garden when he sweats great drops of blood and on the cross. And, and Jonathan Edwards and John Owens say, it's all propitiatory blood. It's all atoning blood because it's all the blood of the Savior and his whole life was suffering. I think we're meant to get that when we see this. And there is deep humiliation in this act of purification because the son of God needed no purification. He's the only one that didn't inherit a sin nature from Adam. Adam, And yet for his whole life, Jesus would be identified with sinners. Though the Bible says he is wholly harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Though he himself says the one that was sent from God is righteous. There is no unrighteousness in him. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in all points, even as we are yet without sin. That he was sinless. The Apostle Paul said, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why is Jesus undergoing this act and receiving a sign that says he needed his heart cleansed when he had no need for cleansing because he was going to take the sins of his people on himself? And even as an infant, what he came into the world to do was being signified by that sign so that he would forever be representative of his people. He didn't start representing you on the cross. He represents you here at this moment of his own purification. There's something also related to that in this passage. It's fascinating. Um, His name, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is given to him at the moment when he takes the bloody sign of judgment. So that who he is and what he came to do are linked Inseparably, And then notice this. Notice verse 22. When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, if you went back to Leviticus 12, you would find that this is really the second act is an act of Mary's purification. That, that in the law... Uh, when a woman had a child, she was considered unclean. Why? Why would? Why would she be considered unclean? When she's bringing a life into the world, because she's bringing a sinner into the world, because she's a sinner, and every woman bringing a child into this world is bringing a sinful child. You know, I've always loved when people say, "Well, children aren't sinful." Clearly, you don't have children. <laughs> Clearly, that that's said by a a twenty four year old young man who's not even married. Um, We don't teach our children to disobey. We get angry when our children disobey. Um, Every Israelite woman bringing a child into this world was bringing a sinner into this world, and in that sense was making the world even more unclean because as I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who had written into the London Times and they had asked, what's the greatest problem in the world today? And Chesterton had done that op-ed and written and he said dear sir I am then the news is not going to tell you that and say yeah he's the problem no I'm the problem and you're the problem and all sinners are and and here Mary who is a sinner has to offer a sacrifice. She has to transfer the uncleanness to an animal that will die and suffer judgment because that's what she deserves. And and yet it's interesting. She's not bringing a sinner into the world. She's bringing the sinless, eternal son of God into the world. I never saw that before. Again, just as Jesus taking the covenant sign to himself and and just as he had to go undergo a baptism of repentance though he needed no repentance why why did he do it because you need to repent and i need to repent why why did he take a bloody son of judgment because i deserve judgment and the only way that judgment is going to be lifted on judgment day is if he takes it for me and the only way mary's uncleanness could be removed the only way our uncleanness could be removed is by way of sacrifice and and Jesus is that sacrifice. He, he, he is the sacrifice appointed by God to take away the sins of his people. You know, it's interesting here that there are two sides of Jesus's saving work. So it is appropriate, I suppose, we talk about this as we celebrate the incarnation in a, in a focused way. Why did Jesus come into the world? There's lots of ways we can answer that question. The Apostle John says, "For this reason, the Son of God was manifested, that He may destroy the works of the the devil, the evil one. That's that's one of the reasons Jesus came into the world. But but Jesus came to atone for the sins of His people. Jesus came to give us a righteous status before God if we believe in Him. Because my great problem is I'm not righteous, and how am I going to pass through Judgment Day when I've done so much wrong? The, the second I breathe my last breath, that's it. It's a count for every word, thought, action. And that means I'm in big trouble unless I have a savior. And, and so the savior came into the world to forgive my sins and to clothe and cover his people with his righteousness. And, and how does he do that? He does it by doing two things, by perfectly keeping the law and by hanging on the curse tree. Those are the two parts of the saving work of Christ. He obeys perfectly and he becomes a curse on the cross. You know, it's interesting, even as a baby, Jesus is obeying the law. Isn't that awesome? Is that not awesome? He's not even fully conscious. And yet God had appointed that he would be raised in a godly home by parents who would fear him and would Observe all of the statutes of the Lord on behalf of Him, and as He is in that home, and as they are doing this for Him, He is perfectly fulfilling the law. I heard Ligon Duncan say this recently. Um, you know, Moses had given the law to Israel; God had given the law through Moses, and and um, and here Jesus is obeying as an infant the law of Moses, and and Ligon said He He is actually. Keeping the law of Moses better than Moses did, because remember, Moses refused to give the sign of circumcision to his son, Gershom, and God wanted to kill him. And so he is greater than Moses. He is perfectly keeping a law that he was greater than because he is God who gave the law. And yet the Apostle Paul says very, very importantly. In the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. So that the only way Jesus could redeem the people and us is to keep the righteous commands of God perfectly. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. On judgment day, if you wanted God to judge you by your standard, you wouldn't go to heaven. Okay, <laughs> I want you to think about that. If you want God to judge you according to the way you hold other people to what you hold other people to, your standard, you would not pass the test. And God's standard is so much deeper and so much more demanding and all-embracing and all-encompassing and absolutely devastating to us. That we needed God himself to come in the flesh and fulfill it for us to merit righteousness. So that when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, it's as if I've kept that law perfectly, even though I never will in this life and never can in this life. Um, And so you see the two sides of the saving work of Jesus here at his um, this this narrative, you, you see that he is prefiguring the suffering, the bloodshed he's going to have to endure, taking the sins of his people on himself in his circumcision. You see his law keeping. And then secondly, I want us to consider just briefly the actual presentation. Notice that um, Mary has now come and Jesus at this point is 40 days old. This might be the 41st day. She has come to the temple. She has come bringing that sacrifice for purification, but she has also come to present Jesus, her firstborn son, to the Lord. Now, what's interesting about this is several things. First, um, Mary is too poor to bring the normal sacrifice. If you went back to Leviticus 12, you would find... That God required that that she bring a lamb, uh, and and then at the end of that chapter, Moses says, "But if the person coming can't afford a lamb, then there was a provision for the poor and the needy that they could bring uh, two young turtle doves or a pair of pigeons, and and Mary has to take the the welfare option um, in coming to the temple." which is more of the humiliation of Christ. Here is God who owns everything, who holds all of us. We live and move and have our being right now in him. And he owns every molecule of the universe. And he's born into a home where his parents can't even afford the normal sacrifice, which itself would have been humiliation for Christ to have to be identified with. And, and she's in the temple. And you know what's interesting? The New Testament writers make a, an enormous deal out of the fact that Jesus is the glory of God. Um, when the Apostle Paul wants to explain what happens to somebody when they become a Christian... He says it's the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And, and he is essentially the Shekinah glory. So when the priest went into the temple in the Old Testament and he brought the blood of the sacrifice and put it over the mercy seat and God showed up. It was glory. It was the Shekinah glory. And and remember the two angels, one at the head and one at the, the, the other side with their wings touching. And the, the glory of God shone forth. And, and what happens in the resurrection? What happens? They, they go into the tomb and there's an angel, one at the head, one at the feet where the body of Jesus lay. The glory of God. That's who Jesus is. And here, he's being carried into the temple, the very place where that glory dwelt. The very place where he inhabited, but he's not in the most holy place. He's in the outer courts. What does that mean? That means you can approach him because you couldn't go into the most holy place. Um, Just like he was born in a manger. You know, Charles Spurgeon says if he had been born in a palace, you couldn't have gone and approached him. But he was born in a feeding trough. So you can go and bow and worship him. The worst sinner can go to him anybody could come to the outer court just about and here he's he's in the outer court and he's he's being brought to the priest and yet he is the great high priest and notice that Luke notes that he has to be set apart to the Lord every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and and he is he is being presented and this is a marvelous thing because it, it was true that every firstborn son in Israel was was to be set apart to the Lord as the first fruits but this is the eternal son and here Mary's bringing him and and the Lord is being presented to the Lord why why is that a big deal why why even care why is it in the bible why does it matter it matters because if you are going to heaven when you die if you are redeemed it is only because Christ has been received and accepted by his Father. You know, I love the last cry of Jesus from the cross. It's, it's almost the sweetest. And we often don't think about it. Jesus, just before he dies, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One old writer says when he was committing his spirit to the father he was committing the spirits of all those that he came into the world to redeem and shed his blood for as our representative at his birth he's being presented to the lord in his death he is committing himself into the hands of his father for us and that's good news because whenever god the father looks on the son he looks on him with infinite delight satisfaction and pleasure. And when he looks on us in the sun, he looks on us with delight and pleasure, even though we know in and of ourselves we are filthy and wretched. So that the only way I get peace is in that message and believing that message. You know, John in First John it's one of the sweetest gospel words in the Bible. He says, um, if anyone sins, writing to believers, if anyone sins, and, and you almost laugh when he says, if if anyone sins, because we know we're going to. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, so that right now he is before the face of God as God in the flesh, forever God and man sitting on the throne of God, and he is forever representing his people. So that when God looks at us, he looks at us through the sun and in the sun. You know, I I don't know. I don't know how people deal with their sin in, in a world like this if we don't have that. Because I'm devastated when I sin. And and what do you do with that if you don't have Christ? You have hopelessness. Why do we love Christmas so much? Because of this. All of this, all of this is what produces joy and peace and and you know, I've never met an unbeliever who doesn't want joy and peace. And yet men and women, sadly, so often do not come to the Savior. who says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come without money, buy wine, milk, without price. Eat, let your soul live. Look to me and be saved. You know, if you are here tonight and you have never come to Jesus... When you come to Jesus, you find in him so much more than what I'm saying right now that even words can't explain fully. Um, it would be a sad thing if you heard these things and went out of here and did nothing and didn't come to the Savior. And I want to talk to you if you are a believer tonight. Um Let these truths wash over you afresh. Um, Christ shed blood as an infant because he was going to shed blood on the cross for our sins. Um, Jesus kept the law of God perfectly for us. And Jesus was accepted and presented to his father to be the perfectly accepted redeemer. In a sense, Jesus is being redeemed for the redeemed in this passage. So any redemption that we have is exclusively based on what he did. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would both cause these truths to be heard for the first time, um, opening the ears of the hearts, Of men and women who may not have ever come to know you. We pray that you would make these truths come to us afresh, um, maybe for the thousandth time tonight, for those who have believed and yet we often forget. We often are weighed down with grief and sorrow and our own sin. We pray, our God, that you would give us the clearest sight of the Lord Jesus Christ again. We so desperately need to see him and hear him. We pray that you would increase our faith. We pray that you would grant us repentance and deepen repentance in us. Father in heaven, would you have mercy on us all, we pray. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.